Hannah and I went to Liverpool um, just last year as a, a bit of a weekend away and it is a lovely city. We had a great time and an unexpected highlight for us was going to, the highlight by far, was going to the cathedral in Liverpool, which we don't normally go in for things like that, but people had just repeatedly said, go to the cathedral, go to the cathedral. So we did and it almost literally took our breath away. It is a staggering building um, of beauty and it kind of, it filled us with a bit of awe as we were in it. And throughout the ages, cathedrals have been built as a bit of a training tool for the society that they're in. They have always been built as a, uh, in a prominent position in places. Um, to, to take people's gaze away from the things of today and the things that are on the floor, the material world. And not just, they're not just designed to point people up towards the heavenlies and towards God, but they're actually designed in that to direct people towards the things of eternity and to have people's view fixed on the eternal future. And that is in our teaching series that we're in at the moment called A, a Certain Future, that our teaching series up until Christmas. That is essentially what we are doing. We are building a cathedral through this teaching series to fix our minds on the things of the eternal future. We know that we're in a hugely disruptive time. And one of the things that's going on right now for us is that many of the things that we, without even thinking about, put our trust and our hope in and thought that thing's never gonna move. And so we just, we put confidence in it. They're now falling away. And things like, our school's gonna be open. That's a question mark all of a sudden. And we're learning that these fragile things cannot bear the weight of our trust. And so what we are doing, which is a very New Testament thing, is we are, we are literally training our minds and saying we need to fix our heads and our hopes on the things of the future, the things of eternity that we can have complete confidence in. And so to do that, there's many different places you could go into the Bible, but we've gone into the book of Revelation, the end of the book, to see the, how everything is going to end and what the new heavens and the new earth are going to look like as we go on. And so that's where we've been living. And, and as we live with our mind in, our turn, in eternity, as we have been seeing throughout our series, it actually then changes how we live today. And last week, we looked at a very challenging passage, the thousand years, um, which is very challenging on an intellectual level. It's quite a lot to try and get your head around and try and understand. This week is another challenging passage, but I think more on a kind of moral, ethical level where we read it and we think that doesn't seem quite right. Or that, that's hard for me to try and get my heart around rather than try and get my head around. And so this is the fifth message, as Rianne said, in our series, and I'm calling it No Middle Ground. And we're going to see as we try and get our hearts around some of the difficult imagery that we find in this passage in Revelation chapter 20, that actually, as we get around it, we will see that it is a prophetic call over us to live our lives in a radically different way. So I hope you're up for some of that this morning. We're going to be reading from Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through to 15. So do turn with me if you've got a Bible. Um, it's always good to be able to track along for yourself, but the words will appear on the screen. We're reading from the English Standard Version translation of the Bible. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. 
Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So probably even just from first reading, you can see some of the challenge that our hearts might have with some of this. And I think it's worth just reminding ourselves and, and, and going back and seeing actually the book of Revelation, it's not just something that appeared out of nowhere, but it was a letter that John wrote to some churches in uh, on the mainland. And it's very important that we know this because in writing to churches, John is writing to Christians, which is this sounds like the most basic thing that's ever you could ever point out. But I think it's just worth knowing that this letter was written to people who know God. And so in knowing God and knowing that he had uh, he had saved them and knowing that they, they knew his grace, they knew his kindness, they knew his love, they knew that he was their good and perfect father. They were steeped in the things of God already. And so they're not receiving this picture cold, but they're receiving it as part of this God who loves me and is for me is is also like this. Or I see another side of him. This is another piece of the puzzle in understanding who God is. And one of the central threads that we see throughout the book of Revelation is that it is a book written to people who at this stage in the life of the church and the state of society as it was, were very tempted to start to live a life that was more shaped or certainly increasingly shaped by the culture and the world that they were living in rather than shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were starting to think, is there really going to be bad consequences? If I start to say Caesar is Lord as well as Jesus is Lord, that's going to earn me quite a lot of money. And does it really matter too much if I do that? And the whole book of Revelation really is to unveil some of the spiritual realities that are going on and to point out and say there are many unseen consequences to these kind of things. There are, in fact, eternal consequences going on that we might not see and might not perceive were it not for this revelation. Which leads us to verse 11, which I think sets the scene for us really, really well. Let me read it again. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. So here we see earth and sky flee away, which they don't get destroyed. That's just an interesting point that's worth putting a pin in. We'll, we'll look into that tomorrow and in future weeks. They're not destroyed, but they, they go away for a time. And this means that we can locate it very easily and almost nobody would dispute this. This is the end of history, the end of time. Uh, the creation has come to an end because of God. And this is this is the time that this this passage is set in. And before it, as earth and sky fly away, we have this throne. But not just any throne, a great white throne. That's very important. The whiteness of the throne and the scale of it tell us that we are witnessing someone sat on it who is holy and pure and righteous and just. 
and we are seeing the one revealed god himself god the father who is sat on the throne here we are seeing him in a scale and in a size and in a way we have never perceived if you notice this self-revelation of god what happens when he turns up in this way creation flies away did you i don't know if you caught in the wording of it, it from his presence earth and sky flee away this is a slightly different revelation or, or moment of perceiving god or unveiling of god than that which we have seen it starts to set the groundwork for us of this is god in a way that we may not have seen him before we saw at the beginning of our series that the book of revelation is verse 1 chapter 1 the revelation of jesus christ helps us to know jesus better helps us to know god better this here is it sets the scene for us that this is an invitation here for us to start to know god better Verse 12, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Sees the dead before the throne, great and small. Here we see, quite simply, again, every commentator on Revelation would agree what's going on here. This is the end of time, and every human who has ever lived is raised to life to stand before the throne of God. That's what we get here. We, we get it from the, the great and small. It's like this encompasses every human that's ever lived. And then it's kind of repeated throughout the passage where it says the sea gave up their dead and death and Hades gave up their dead. Just the kind of repeated thing of the dead were gave up to this. Every human who has ever lived raised to life to stand before the throne of God. I don't know if you've ever thought or imagined what the end of history is going to look like what what's everything leading towards well this this moment this point that it's not just believers who are raised to life but each and every person who has ever lived will be raised to life to stand before god's throne and then it says and books were opened and the dead were judged by what was written in the books and the significance of books in here is that books are an instrument of human memory. Before the days of the iPhone 12 with its 16 cameras on the back to make sure it get, captures every single mo moment or movement that there could ever be, if you wanted to remember something for more than about two days or a week or whatever, you had to actually write it down using a pen. Do you remember those things? That's what the, the, this was the, the cutting edge technology to make sure that something that has happened gets recorded and remembered for time. And so the emphasis here is these are accurate records of all that has happened. But more than that, not only are they accurate, but that they are they're fair and they are transparent. This is not just dependent on how is God going to wake up? on that morning or how he's feeling or what he had for breakfast that will depend on the judgment. No, these are books that have been written accurately recording all that has happened. And they are God's books. They are a record that he has recorded of our lives. Which means that for every person, whether they be, as it says, great or small, there will be no way 
for people to be able to slightly embellish the truth or to spin it in a way that they might like this is bad news for tabloid journalists everywhere no way to be able to slightly twist the truth to make it look more favorable for yourself god is going to tell the story of our lives all of us will be seen as we truly are this is quite a terrifying prospect for all of us i mean for who all of us whoever we are however we've been raised all of us choose to project a version of ourselves to other people in depending on what setting we're in and who's about we project a version of ourselves there's certain things that we'll be very open-handed about and we'll say yeah i do this and do that there'll be other things for each of us that we like to try and keep hidden and we will share with very few people and there'll be some things that some of us will share with nothing nobody and that maybe we don't even know ourselves about ourselves. And we are very, very familiar with this. Those of us that have been raised or certainly very familiar with social media culture where we are encouraged or certainly it's the norm to curate an image of yourself and to even see yourself as a brand and to have basically an internal PR committee without meeting in our heads forever without taking any breaks, thinking, what version of, of ourselves are we going to let out? What version of ourselves are we gonna to project today? Who are we going to be today? And putting that out. And that has only got all the more since we have been living our lives on screen. And so now we all live our lives over Zoom. Many of our people interactions are happening over Zoom, which means we can continue to curate an image of ourselves. We pick the coolest wall in our house, or in my case, the wall in the house that is further and furthest away from the noise of the children. And we then hide all of our mess. Who, are, who Hand up if you've got some mess that you moved out from the camera shop before you <laughs> logged on today. You've no idea what's around here. There's a stray cat. There's some broken glass. There's a little fire going on over there, but you don't see that so I can cur curate my own image. When we're before God, we will not be able to curate our own image. We won't be able to hide any of the mess. He will see it all and he'll see all of us. And in that context, we will be judged according, as it says in verse 12, according to what they had done. And this phrase, judged according to what they'd done, is then repeated in verse 13. If it said once, we maybe could have just avoided it and, you know, scooted over it. The fact it's repeated twice tells us actually this is one of, but it's probably the controlling idea of the whole passage. That we will be judged according to what we have done. Loud and clear, it says, how we live our lives really matters. That how we live our lives has eternal significance. And notice here that it says that they were judged according to what they had done. This is not being judged according to what they hoped to get round to at some point in their life or being judged according to the causes that they posted about on social media that they wished they were doing a little bit more towards. It doesn't even say this is a this is this might hit home. It doesn't even say that they were judged according to what they believed in their hearts. It says 
they were judged according to what they had done. And with that in mind, we move on to verse 14, where we meet the lake of fire. And first we see that death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. And this is almost a bit of a reminder for us. Um, for those that have been tracking along the series, we have seen the lake of fire turn up already, but we have seen spiritual powers being thrown into the lake of fire. It's kind of a weird, bizarre concept for us, particularly if you're, if you, you're raised in the West and we don't talk about unseen spiritual forces very much at all in our upbringing. But there are these evil powers we saw Babylon in chapter 18. We saw the, the false prophet and the beast in chapter 19. We saw the devil himself in earlier in chapter 20 thrown into this lake of fire. All of the powers and the forces of evil that exist, that entered into the world at the point of the fall, that performed a hostile takeover on creation and got creation, all of creation, into its grip so that nobody and nothing could avoid being enslaved to some extent and perpetuating some form of, of, of wrong or evil because they were, in, they were gripped by these powers that were at work. We have seen all of these powers and with the, the, the finish here with death, death and Hades thrown into this lake of fire. That this moment, this final judgment moment begins with all of these evil powers finally been condemned to this lake of fire. All of the powers of evil that have infiltrated into creation, coming under the authority of the good and righteous King Jesus, being put under his feet and now knowing their final defeat and their final punishment for all the evil that they have perpetuated, as they are condemned to this place, and King Jesus has his victory. And if the verses were to finish here, probably all of us would have quite an easy time of then just transitioning into a moment of worship and thinking, Jesus, you're so powerful. You're so good. You have destroyed all that enslaved us. You have put all of our enemies under your feet and you have destroyed them and they will now face judgment and, uh, and they will ne no longer be able to, to hurt us or touch us because they are condemned to this place of punishment. And we would rejoice and all of that would be true. But then following on from verse 14, we come to verse 15. And verse 15 challenges us. Let me read it again. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Here we see that the, the lake of fire is not just for all of these powers that we have come across that have then been condemned and punished but the lake of fire in the final judgment will also be the fate of some of the people stood before the throne some of the dead who are raised will be condemned to the lake of fire and it then necessarily asks us well what what is that fate going to look like what will that be like and the, the lake of fire comes up four times in Revelation. Um, and it is, I guess, commonly what we would describe it as, as is hell. It's that same, the same place, the, the opposite of heaven, if you like. 
And Revelation, as we've seen, it's highly symbolic. So we're not talking about uh, a literal lake. We're not talking about literal fire. It's describing something of what the atmosphere there is like. And the Bible doesn't offer much in terms of additional description. It doesn't paint it out in any vivid detail at all, but it is very, very consistent in how it talks about hell. Jesus, when he talks about it in Matthew chapter 25, talking about the, the final judgment, he talked about it as a place of eternal fire. And then in the book of Jude, talking about the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, talks about it as a place of eternal, uh, the punishment of eternal fire. And then the verse just before we started reading, where it talks about the lake of fire, um, with the, where the devil is sent, it says that it's a place of torment day and night forever and ever. That although there isn't lots of detail to what this place looks like, there is a consistent biblical picture that this seems to be a place of ongoing eternal suffering. And I think the biggest clue that we get here, if, if there are clues at all, as to, to what it might be like or how can we picture it, I think is found in this phrase, the second death in verse 14 and it occurs again in chapter 21 that there was a, a, there's a sense in which in the in our in this life we can either know spiritual life or spiritual death and for those that have known a spiritual death that is just the first of the death but that it will be that the the lake of fire will be the second death the permanence of death and that there will be this kind of eternal again it's it's kind of poetic language it's quite difficult to put it in literal terms but a kind of ongoing eternal experience of going from death to death joseph mangina in his commentary on the book of revelation calls it experiencing the self-consuming futility of death and in revelation chapter 14 it talks of the lake of fire as a place of of restlessness of no peace and no comfort. That it, I think the best we can really understand it as is a place, an eternal place, where the fate of those who goes there is it's terrible. And I think for all of us, this is a really hard thing for us to try and get our heads around and to try and picture. I don't think any of us in this zoom call or listening on youtube however you're hearing this i don't think any of us like this i don't think any of us find it easy to rejoice in it i don't think any of us if we were choosing our own system of justice would paint it out like this and think that this is what fairness looks like it doesn't perhaps look like fairness and justice and righteousness to us but I think it's really interesting for us to remember where we started in these passages, in this passage, in verse 11, where it explicitly painted out that this process is happening before a great white throne, in front of a throne of goodness and truth and righteousness and justice, with books that are fair and impartial and transparent. That this is not a God operating on a whim but this is a decided system of justice being worked out by a holy god 
And I think it's worth remembering the scale of the revelation and the scale of the holiness of God that is appearing here, where the earth and the sky flee away. That we are witnessing God in a way that we have never seen him before. The otherness of God is apparent here, that he is not like us. We are not like this being. I don't know if you've ever tried to make the earth and sky flee away, but I'm going to guess you've had very limited success. Here is God and truly his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And I think that this actually presents to us, which for some of us may be a challenge, but an opportunity for us to approach the scriptures with with a humility and to say, actually, as hard as I find this, I'm going to allow the scriptures to tell me who God is. I refuse to try and make God into my image or to form him into the way that I want him to be. But I will allow him to reveal himself to me. That's the challenge. I think many of us would say, oh, yeah, I want a greater revelation of God. I want to see Jesus as he truly is. But then when he appears in a way that offends us, we're like, well, I'm not like that. I will have a slightly different. I will actually I want Jesus in a bigger way in the way that I like him. I don't know if you can relate to that. Certainly that's how I feel. But here we see now the Bible gets to tell us what does righteousness look like? What does truth look like? Um, I've been really helped as well by as we go through the book of Revelation, there are these moments, chapter six, chapter 16, stand out where we see the saints. So us or people like us who have already died and are in the heavenlies with Jesus. And we get these pictures of them. And consistently, what we hear them saying is crying out to Jesus, Jesus, would you bring justice to the world? Would you bring about the final day of judgment? And God is is kind of encouraging them, be patient, you have to wait. But the people of God in heaven with Jesus are saying, we want to see your justice come. We want to see you judge. I find that really really instructive they are crying out for the judgment of god in a way that i don't think many of us would we don't see it as a good and holy thing in the way that they would but here are the saints in the heavenlies crying out for it but i think what we see here is the closer you get to jesus the more this makes sense that these saints that are in the heavenlies with Jesus, they see him far more brightly and far more purely and clearly than we do. And they have been stripped of all of their cultural baggage of what right looks like, what wrong looks like, that now they're free from all of that and they see Jesus, they understand it. They see what we find to be an impossible thing of justice, they see it as a right and good act. I find that really encouraging. And actually the encouragement to us as a response to this, if we do find it challenging, is don't run away from Jesus. Draw near to him. Get closer to him. Come to him with your questions. Come to him with your pain. Come to him with your, I don't quite understand this, Jesus. This doesn't seem right to me. And as we draw closer to him, he will help us. We'll see it clearly and it will make more sense to us. And it also gives us great hope. 
that on that day when we are with him, whether that is when we pass from this age and go to be with him in the heavenlies or whether he comes back before that and we meet him on this judgment day, there will be no internal tension for us. We will see it and we will understand. And for us, we won't have conflict. We will just be filled with awe and wonder as he brings this about. Because in his writing here, John is trying to shock and offend. Striking imagery has the power to be able to move us and motivate us to action. I think we saw this perhaps most prevalently or more prevalently than we have in many years with the brutal murder of George Floyd this year. Police brutality towards black people, towards people of colour in the US, yes, and in the UK to a lesser extent, but a very real extent, has been well documented for many, many years. And yet, what did it take for a spark of movement to start to change people and start to motivate big change in the area of understanding systemic race and all that goes along with that and racial injustice? What did it take? It took a striking image of a man being brutally murdered at the hands of the police for change to start to come about. And maybe even more interestingly for us in this case, not just the image itself, but the reporting of the image had power. I don't know about you, but I personally didn't watch it. That was just my personal choice. But yet I read some of the reports of what it was like and what happened in that video. And even for me, that struck me, it moved me, and it has motivated me to personal change and an action powerful images have the, the are able to move us and so these are hard verses they are meant to evoke emotions in us they're meant to cause all of these questions and these tensions to rise within us they're meant to almost shock and offend but ultimately not so that we're able to try and decode them not so that we're able to get our heads around them not so that we're able to get to an intellectual point of understanding of them but to lead us to action. Listen to a theologian called Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza, a feminist theologian um, on Revelation. This is what she says. Rather than writing a theological sermon or moral exhortation on how to act, Revelation seeks to move its audience to action with the power of its images and vision. Its rhetoric does not seek to just evoke an intellectual response, but also wants to elicit emotional reactions and religious commitments and seeks to engender prophetic motivation for decision and action. Do you hear that? It seeks to engender prophetic motivation for decision and action. It's not presenting us a reality for us to try and get our heads around. It's appealing to our emotions and provoking us to lead to life change. That the primary purpose of the, 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 the lake of fire is to paint a picture of, uh, for us of an image, a place where nobody would choose to go. A fearsome, terrible place that we want to avoid at all costs, whatever it looks like. It's meant to be highly evocative. It's meant to be terrible imagery that provokes us. And it's meant to prophetically motivate us 
to want to live differently. It's meant to lead us to the stark imagery of verse 15, where we see black and white, there are only two possible paths that our life can take. Either we find ourselves in the book of life, which leads to eternal life, or we find that our fate is in the lake of fire, and that leads to eternal death. There is no middle ground. There is no third option down the middle. Jesus wants us to get a glimpse here of the horror, to maybe even be gripped by some of the terror that comes with it, to prophetically motivate us to make decisive action in our life and say, I do not want that. I want to avoid that at all costs. I long to find my name written in the book of life. Or to give it its full name, as we find it in chapter 13 and chapter 21, the Lamb's book of life. The book of Jesus Christ the lamb who was slain. The one who crafted for us this second path, this second option. That this image for us, it, it, it invites us to imagine just for one moment what our fate would look like if there was no second path. It's, it's to cause us to receive once again a fresh wave of gratitude that he has made a way not to death, but a way to life with him. That he has, as we read in here, he has a book. He has the book of life. He has written a story through his death that leads to our life. That our life is now not found by trying to author our own path to salvation, it's not found by us trying to write our own story for our lives. It is found by us entering into his book. Into our lives, entering into the story of Jesus. How we live our lives, as we've seen, as is, is made so clear in this passage, how we live our lives determines our fate. And the only path to life is one that completely gives up our life. One that says to Jesus, here it is, here's my life. I don't want to live my life anymore. I want to live your life. The, the, the prophetic motivation of this passage is to say, Jesus, I, I understand there really is no other way to live. There's no other path that leads to life. I want to live your life. I want to surrender my life to live the life of the lamb to live the way of jesus i want to give myself over to complete and utter obedience and dependence on him i want to surrender my own goals and life aims up to him and come completely under the authority and submission of my king and yet all of this talk of how we live our lives might start to make some of us a bit uncomfortable because we might start to think, surely this runs a little bit counter to the message of grace. I thought that we are saved by grace. I thought that salvation in Christ was a free gift given before we do anything. 
Well, actually, what we see here is not something that runs counter to the message of grace, but is actually more a kind of full picture of what the grace of God in our life really looks like. That we are only saved by grace. We are only saved as a free gift from God because he decided that he loved us before we knew of him, before we could first love him. He decided in his kindness and in his his mercy and in his self-sacrificial love to us that he would make a way. And in Jesus Christ spilling his blood, he has written through his blood our names in his book of life. And yet there's more to the grace of God. Because that same God that while we were far off, he saved us and he wrote our names in this book. This same God as a gift, as a continual gift to us, in his goodness, also chooses to get hold of our lives and say, it's not just enough that you would be saved, but it is enough. I want to, to empower you and give you everything you need for the grace that I'm pouring out to you to be shown in your life, to lead to life change, all of the power that we need to turn away from our old life, to live his way, to live the life of the Lamb and to live in his story. But perhaps even more important for us today is that not only does his grace save us, not only does it give us the power to live differently, but his grace comes to us and it is also his grace, the same God that writes our names in his book, is the same God that gives us the desire to want to live for him. You might be thinking, why on earth is this important? Because if you're sat there thinking right now, I wish that's what my life looked like. I wish I lived a completely faithful, obedient life to God. I wish I lived a life that would I, I could be would guarantee me entry into the book of life. But that's not what my life looks like. I, in fact, I feel far off from that. The fact that his grace not only gives us power, but also gives us the desire to live for him means that if you're feeling like that, that is a mark of his grace at work in you, his salvation power in you. In short, it's a mark that your life is indeed written in the book of life, that if you even have just the smallest kernel of desire of yeah, I want, I want to live my life for Jesus. I wish my life looked more like that. That is a sign he is at work in your life. His grace is upon you and that your name is written in the book of life. And if you know him, if you're in a relationship with him, if you know Jesus, he would want you to know without any shred of a doubt, he would want you to have complete assurance your name is written in the book of life. And if you don't know him, he equally would want you to know before you close down this Zoom call today or log off YouTube, you can know that your name is written in the book of life. And equally, what he would want us to know is that each and every part of our salvation is a gift from him. Jesus really has done it all. He has made a way for us to be saved. He has accomplished our salvation through his death on the cross and his glorious resurrection that we've been celebrating this morning. And now he has drawn us into his salvation through writing our name in his book. And he goes above and beyond by continually pouring out his spirit on our life to give us desire 
and motivation to live for him and live out our salvation. And so his prophetic encouragement to us this morning is come and experience more grace, come and receive more grace that you might all the more be able to live out this life and live the life of the Lamb. He would want us to know there really are only two paths that we can take. That either we receive life in this life and it leads to more life or we go into death in this life and it leads to more death. That there really is no middle ground in there. That I think for us it can so often be so tempting to think as society lives so counter to the ways of the gospel and is so shaped by the by other things other than Jesus we can start to think maybe there is some kind of false middle ground that we can occupy that we can kind of live for Jesus but also kind of live for the world that we can think oh maybe it's okay if I maybe it's okay I, I can live fully for Jesus and sleep with my girlfriend at the same time or everybody around me is 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 looking at porn everybody around me is smoking weed even some Christians that I know surely it doesn't matter that much if I do or maybe even just thinking maybe the Christian life really is just about me going my own way and God will empower me as I go now that's such a dangerous space to be trying to occupy in the middle there a middle ground that really doesn't exist this revelation that Jesus gave to John, who then passed on to the ancient churches and now comes to us 2000 years later, is this prophetic call for us that is designed to, to shock us. It's designed to wake us up and to offend us and to, to cause all of these kind of emotions to, to stir up. Is that right? Is that true? Is that this, this, it, could it really be that terrible? So that it motivates us to action so that it motivates us to a life of allegiance to Jesus that leaves the false middle ground behind and says, no, I'm going to live fully for him. That's my desire. I want to live more and more for him and that we accept his gracious call to come to him, to receive all the power and the strength we need to live for him despite all of the challenges of our society.